He stated that he had been appointed to suggest a president for Howard College. So there was a lot of industry investment when I grew up, a lot of progressiveness. However, it was still a typical small southern town. To be perfectly honest with you, um, I didn't know what Alabama was until I stepped foot in Alabama. I was not greeted by hecklers. I was greeted by Martha and Cox. Well, coal miners are coal miners at heart, wherever they are. They're, they're faced in danger every day. So it brings them closer together. And um, I think that coal mining is in your blood. Welcome back to Sam Dot Wave. We're your hosts, Claire Davis and Michelle Little. And today we are bringing you the history of Docena, Alabama. If you listened to our last episode, you already know a little bit of background about the mining town and Sanford University's involvement with it. If you haven't, be sure to take some time to do so. It's an amazing story in its own right. For most of its history, Docena, Alabama was tied to the mining industry. In 1907, the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company exchanged the land in a deal to better access the Pratt coal seam. However, it wasn't until 1912 when the Docena our interviewees knew and loved was born. Docena was the first of several model mining villages within TCI. The planned communities had all the necessities and several perks, such as paved roads, schools, stores, churches, parks, and social halls. Compared to contemporary conditions in other mining camps, Docena was a paradise. The superiority of Docena was stressed in several of the 1979 interviews conducted by Dr. Reichert's oral history class. Ranging from 15 minutes to over two hours, these interviews covered mining conditions, community activities, and, most of all, fond childhood memories. All of this can be found in Joy Richardson's home interview with Miss Melba Cazare, who opened this episode, and her friend, Miss Plunkett. Having moved to Docena as a child, Miss Cazare was in the unique position to contrast her old home in Blount County with Docena and found it to be, in her words, Wonderland. And what was your, your home like, that first home? When I came to Docena? Mm-hmm. Imagine you're in that home. Okay, I lived in a wood, a log, a log cabin home in the hills of Blount County, and I came to a brown painted house. Like, you know, there was paint on all four sides and the top. First time I'd ever lived in a painted house. All the rooms were wallpapered with what I thought was the most beautiful wallpaper I had ever seen. And it was. The floors were covered in linoleum, and and I had been able to see the chickens through the floor where I lived. I mean, it was primitive. Mm-hmm. And um, the schools had... Flush and John's. First time I ever saw a Flush oh, and John. Mm-hmm. First time I ever saw a telephone was when I came here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a lot of firsts when I moved here that the first week that I came. And I'm only 40 years old, and I know a girl at church that I wasn't old enough to remember things so primitive. She didn't have to be old to have come from the hills of Blount County. Listeners might remember that Mrs. Kazari wrote a book about growing up in Docena that Story stumbled upon through our intern Cameron's outreach. Flipping through the book, it's plain to see the care and concern that Mrs. Kazari took to compile her neighbors' experiences as well as the pride she felt for her community. 
Dr. Reichert's class didn't only interview local families. Some tracked down frequent visitors to the community, as seen in student Jim Nagalski's interview with Mr. E.L. McPhee. Mr. McPhee was the Methodist preacher for Docena as a student at Birmingham Southern College from 1939 to 1941. He served the town by preaching every other Sunday. Why once every two weeks? Mr. McPhee explains. What was the, the normal routine for the, the church at Docena on a weekly basis? How often did it meet? Well, you see, there was one building, it was owned by the company. Very nice brick building. Back of it had uh, Sunday school rooms on it. Uh, it was a pretty large building, much larger than would be necessary for the churches, and they used it in addition to the church as a community building, so that they had community uh, fairs and that kind of thing. They had at that time, and Miss Dollar, D-O-L-L-E-R, trying to think what her first name was. Uh, she was lady from Iway who was in charge of the uh, community service projects in there, hired by the company, and she held her meetings in there. I preached uh, every other Sunday. The Baptist minister, who at that time was a, uh, a student at uh, what was in Howard College, uh, he preached every other Sunday. Each summer, uh, one summer, they had one revival meeting, but both churches sponsored it. Uh, one summer the Methodists would bring the preacher and the Baptists would bring the evangelistic singer. Then the next year they'd reverse it. Um, the sir, of course, you did all the ministerial duties, save at the hospital, normal pastor. However, at that time I was a student at Birmingham Southern and was doing what we call a student supply work. And that's where you went out? I, I, I lived at the at home, which is right here in this area. But I went out there and uh, served the church and stayed. There was one home which I lived part of the time. They had a bedroom, they let me sleep there and, and that kind of thing. Saved going home a lot of times after meeting now. Well, it, I think in some ways the cooperation between the Baptist and the Methodist and, uh, was exceptional. We worked together. Taught the same Sunday school classes. And they had their board, and we had ours. And the collections on the Methodist Sunday went to the Methodist and on the Baptist, and each contributed to the other uh, to some degree. But mostly, uh, when it was the Methodist Sunday, they, I'm sure the Methodist gave the that always went to the Methodist Church, and the Baptist went to the Baptist Church on their Sunday, and that's where the major portion. But uh, they helped each other about. Pretty much, it's not much division. Like Mrs. Kazari, Mr. McPhee also spent some time in other nearby mining communities, which gave him a chance to compare attitudes between congregations. When asked to compare, he remarked on the quintessential Southern hospitality he felt as an outsider to the community. What were some of the things you enjoyed most about the congregation? Oh, we had some of the finest people. Um, they were just very loyal to you, uh, very friendly, open. Uh, I can recall the names of the, of the family, some of the families there, and how nice they were to us. Uh, good about inviting you out in the homes for meals. Uh, most appreciative of any attention you showed them. Uh, 
the there, the people who were loyal to the church had a real deep loyalty. Yes, they were there. They buried very little. Uh, they, um, in many ways, like just uh, like most any other industrial people, when you get away from this fatalistic thing, they were um, very open type people, friendly, um, like gregarious, like to get together and have fun. And, that kind of thing. I thoroughly enjoyed those things. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've always had a warm place in my heart, and some of the families that were there are friends to this day that uh, I maintained over years. I never felt an outsider. No, I don't think they ever, they weren't clannish to the degree that, uh, you know, anybody comes outside that farm. Uh, that, that didn't, I never noticed that at all. As I said, they were open. They were in their home, come on in, spend the night with us, that type of thing. I never felt an outsider at all. Nearly 40 years after Dr. Reichert's class visited Docena, our intern Cameron Tini received the same warm welcome in her interactions with the community. To hear another side of the story, Cameron asked about the church and its function within Docena in her interview with Faye Mason and Nancy Fushi, a mother-daughter pair who both grew up and live in Docena today. Pa the, who's, what's the name of the pastor? Is it Mike? Mike Woodham. Yeah, I think he was saying that it used to be kind of a multi-purpose building. Like they use it as some sort of like a community center um, or a place for like meetings as well as a church. Do you remember that? Oh, or, yeah. Okay. We did, from school, we did our plays at the church because everything was better. Oh, okay. And so when we put on a play, it would be there and we all we had all the Sunday school rooms was for our dressing rooms and all. And we had one play where we had to sing and all of us was in one area. And anyway, it, it was, the church was the main thing. Gotcha. Was, um, did most of the people that you knew go to church? Was that pretty, like if you, you know, lived yeah. in Docena, you went to church, was it like right. that? And that was a Methodist and Baptist church. One week it'd be one week Methodist, one Baptist. Yes. And the different people from college, the important people, when they came and, and talked to us, and they seemed to enjoy it too. I didn't even go to that church all the time. There was another church, but for anything special, we went to that church. Another constant through the years was a sense of optimism about the future of the neighborhood. Just as Mrs. Kazari expressed hope for the tight-knit community that coal mining produced, Ms. Mason also shared her hopes for a new industry to revitalize the community of her childhood, which led to Cameron's main takeaway from her research. In Faye's interview was that she was saying, or I asked like what legacy she hoped Docina would leave, and she was saying how she like still hopes that, you know, that one day there will be truck like you know she'll the mines will come back, and in my mind I was like, well, I don't know that will happen with the way that you know technology has progressed. But I was like thinking more about what she was saying, and I think she was getting at something that was a lot deeper than just you know this industry returning to the U.S. And I think that um, is just having that strong sense of community and whether it's you know we're bound together through you know this industry 
um, or, you know, a type of industry or not, like, what can we find now that, like, binds us, um, and, like, really focusing on that, and so I think, like, that was a huge takeaway for me, it was just seeing how, um, like, even the, at the time, this, you know, one company kind of created, fostered this sense of community, but, like, today, what does that look like for us? I think it, it is a legacy of hope that while we had, when I was younger, we had what we needed, but it was hope to go on out, just like the last entry on there about Red. He was, and he was a hero and people come for me. I did have all the people who come from here that went on to be, do greater things. But I, I wish I could have done more. I wish I could have been more. I think about Miss Bingham, the youth director here, Miss Baker, teacher, Miss Gully. They're, they're heroes. They taught us, taught us to reach, reach for the stars. wasn't anything we couldn't do. And that's about true. If you, if people set their mind to it, but having the rules of of Docena and the regulations and and the responsibilities is what makes people whatever they are. You've got to have that foundation. If you don't, it'll be like Docena is now. It's just mixed up and tore up. And even now, I keep hoping that the mines will open back up mm -hmm. and they'll stop using foreign coal and use this coal again and it'll be like it used to be. May never happen, but still got hope. That's important. So I hold on to my little house, and so one day the trucks will come through here again. As we listened through the Docena interviews, the most striking similarity we found was the interviewee's earnest commitment to a tight-knit community. Despite differences in age, occupation, experience, and even period in history, what impacted interviewees most was not the environment, but how they interacted with their neighbors. Not the company supplied houses, but the people inside of them. Perhaps, as Mr. McPhee suggested later in his interview, it has to do with the dangerous nature of coal mining that breeds a fatalistic and gracious attitude. Perhaps the isolation and self-sufficiency of the community fostered a type of relationship unavailable today with our increasingly interconnected society. Regardless of the mindset's origins, though, we are confronted with the same questions that Cameron was. Decina found their community in a specific industry in a set of company-laid streets. Where do we find it today? Next time on Sam.Wave, we'll be sharing stories from Marion, Alabama, and an oral history project centered around music education and high schools in the area. Until then, make, make waves! Our theme was produced by Sanford student Carrie Joyner. Our background music was supplied by Carrie Joyner, as well as the Blue Dot Sessions and Lobo Loco from the Free Music Archive. 
Joy Richardson conducted the interview with Melba Kazari and Ms. Plunkett. Jim Nagalski conducted the interview with E.L. McPhee. Cameron Tini conducted the interview with Faye Mason and Nancy Fushi. This episode was written and produced by Claire Davis and Michelle Little. This is a Sanford Traditions and Oral History Recordings Initiative production. For more information on our program, you can find our page on the Samford website or follow us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at Samford underscore story and on Twitter at SU underscore story.